Today's Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Well, good morning. It's the second Sunday of Advent, and um, this morning we're talking about a people in waiting, and we're talking about what Advent really is. When I, when I ask people, uh, do you know what Advent is, often they say, oh yeah, I know what Advent is, it's Christmas. And I go, no, it's not Christmas. It's the time preparing us for Christmas, and admittedly, it is a little confusing because there's a lot of overlap. But essentially, we are not pretending that we're waiting for the birth of Christ. Jesus was born 21 centuries ago. We're not acting like he wasn't. What Advent is about is solidarity today with people 21 centuries ago who were waiting for the birth of the Messiah. We are waiting for the return of the Messiah. And so in that regard, history sort of telescopes like an accordion and we are in solidarity with the people in the first century who were waiting because we're waiting. And so that's what Advent is about. And this morning, we're talking about what it means to be a people in waiting. The world is kind of one big waiting room. Some people are waiting to land their dream job or for their ship to come in. Some people are waiting for a husband or a wife, some for true happiness. Some people are waiting for just enough money to do what they really want to do with their lives. Some people are waiting to truly live. And some people are waiting to die or for someone else to die. Whatever it may be, the thing that we wait for can represent our longing or our dread, depending on what it is we're waiting for. And I've thought many times about this, that if our minds could only be truly present without being distracted with thoughts of the future, humans might be able to be really happy, truly happy, to live in the present without being distracted by the future. On the other hand, if your life is miserable, the only hope a person might have is the promise of the future, because the future is innocent, isn't it? It hasn't happened yet. It's filled with possibilities. The future is bright. It's hopeful. It contains our highest ideal and our brightest hopes because, well, the future has not yet been actualized. It hasn't happened yet. So if you are depressed, if you are struggling, if you are going through something difficult in your life, the future is sort of pregnant with possibilities, if you can put it that way. Our hope for the future, of course, is that wrongs will be made right. Broken relationships can be made whole, and painful circumstances can somehow be fixed. 
Somehow the thought of what may come always seems brighter than what is. And so we wait, but we have to be careful with our waiting that it doesn't rob us of present possibilities and present joys. No one can live in the future. If we try and live in the future, we squander both the present and the future. And so we have to live in light of the future. We have to live for today, but always with the end in sight. In Advent, we begin at the end. In Advent, we begin at the end, not at the manger. Not with the Magi offering gifts of worship or the shepherds rejoicing in wonder, not with Mary or Joseph's angelic dream. We begin the season not with Christ's first advent, but with his second. And by beginning at the end and working backward, we're given categories to process life's pain and confusion and disappointments because we realize that there is a goal that history is moving toward and that whatever suffering or pain or disappointments life has given us is not the final word. We have hope, that's what Advent does. It gives us hope. Hope is a major theme of Advent. Not in a sort of, and they all lived happily ever after kind of sense, but rather in like a, a beautiful, and terrifying and fearful kind of way. Story of Advent is not tame and pleasant. It's an ending that expands far beyond the limits of our human conceptions because it declares to us the Lord will come again in glory to judge the world. The living and the dead in his kingdom will have no end. The biblical conception of the second advent is that for God's people, it is a cause of celebration and joy over the final victory over evil. That's what advent should stir in our hearts, that one day evil will be completely vanquished. Revelation 18 gives us a picture of this reckoning the people of the world cried, alas, alas, the great city Babylon has fallen, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. I wonder if we have any room left in our modern, sophisticated, polite theology for the vengeance of God for the judgment of God. Maybe we're too nice for that. It's sort of impolite. The early Christian writer Lactantius wrote celebrating the death of the persecutors when Constantine came to power because Christians were being slaughtered wholesale. And they had prayed for relief and deliverance and so you can imagine Christians in the fourth century, when a ruler comes to power, whether or not Constantine was actually a Christian or not, that's, who knows, but the Christians themselves, when they got some relief, they rejoiced. 
And the people who were their persecutors when they were rounded up, they celebrated. The early Christians celebrated. And the reason why that seems foreign to us, like maybe some small-minded idea, is because none of us have experienced brutal persecution. None of us have been dragged off in the night and publicly executed the next day or been maimed or seen our spouse whipped, publicly flogged, or had all of our belongings taken or been denied a job or evicted from your home because of your faith. But it does happen. Six years ago, it'll be seven this February, ISIS executed 21 men on a beach in Libya. Their masked executors stood in all black behind the men who knelt in a line wearing orange jumpsuits. After the Islamic State released a video of their murders, images of this massacre of Coptic Christians reverberated around the world. They were Egyptian Christians, most of them. One was from Ghana, and they had gone to Libya for work. They were migrant workers trying to earn money to send back to their families. Coptic Christians. And while the particular act of violence caught the attention of millions of people around the world, Egyptian Christians have long experienced persecution, says Archbishop Angelus, who serves in London. He says, the interesting thing is, we live with it, with a sense of resilience, but we have never fallen into a state of victimhood or triumphalism. He said, we realize that it is the cross of Christ that we bear. It's not the end of the road because there is a resurrection that comes after the cross and the empty tomb. And so it is in the hope that we continue to live, he says, and it's in that hope that we continue to carry that cross knowing that it one day will be removed from us. This is why Advent is important. Because it focuses our hearts and our minds on the end, even as some of us in the world, some believers in the world, experience fierce persecution resulting in death. The second advent points us to the resurrection and judgment. And it means, here's what it means, okay? The dark powers of this world will one day be finally and ultimately vanquished. And evil will not go unpunished. And the people of faith, us, have to hold this truth very close to us. It's a comfort and a strength that gets us through the hardest times of our life. Even the Apostles' Creed includes this statement, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. The challenge, of course, is waiting for it, isn't it? Look at what James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James 5, 7, and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it? Until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. Establish 
your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Three things he says here in this passage. Wait patiently, establish or strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Wait patiently, strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. I just want to quickly move through those three things that we see there. There's this beautiful illustration from ancient agriculture, the idea that farmers had to patiently prepare for the crops in spring and summer of the next year by expecting and waiting on two rain cycles, one in October, November, in the fall, and another in the spring in March and April. And you needed both for a good crop season. A particularly dry year would not yield a good season. But it was not time in the, in the, it's not time in the winter, of course, to yield crops. You have to wait for the latter rains as well. And you patiently wait. And you do not cut the crops down before they are mature. This year in our new place, I have shared that I'm working on a plush lawn. I want my granddaughter to be able to walk on the green grass barefooted, little spongy backyard. And so, I, you know, I'm doing something I've never done before. I've we fertilized, you know, uh, at the end of summer and beginning of the fall, and then you reseed. I know some of you have probably been doing this for years. And you have to wait. And you don't really see the benefits, of course, till spring. Some of the seed is already, you know, the sproutlings have already come up a little bit, although those pesky squirrels are my nemesis. But I've got a game plan for that lawn. And I'm waiting, Right? just fertilized, put the winterizer on. But the older I get, the more I learn to appreciate the power of delayed gratification. That the most beautiful things worth having are worth working for and waiting on patiently. The best things in life take time, don't they? And waiting actually makes their arrival sweet. Think of old guys with hot rods. And, you know, if you've got a lot of money, you could just go out and buy a completely restored hot rod. But it's the guys I've known over the years who bought sort of the jalopy hot rod, put it in the garage, and over the course of a decade, little by little, fixed that thing up. And, boy, when they go out on a Saturday afternoon they drive that 57 Chevy, the joy that they feel because they've worked so hard on it for so long that when it's finally in mint condition... It's years of anticipation, and it's sweeter than if you just went out and bought one already completely restored. Patience is a guardrail to your faith. It keeps us moving along the path. Now, why do we lose patience, we might ask? Why? Why do we lose patience? Well, put plainly, like the guy working in the garage on the hot rod who sees the final vision, we lose sight of the end. We lose sight of what it's all for. Sort of a, you know, can't see the forest for the trees situation. We need the panoramic, a bird's eye view, perspective. And Advent gives us the perspective by declaring to us that history is headed somewhere. We fail to lose sight of the end. We become frustrated with our waiting. Or we fail to see the ways that God is already at work in our lives. Because maybe it doesn't fit the script that we've written. 
Revelation 14 says, here is the patience of the saints, that they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This glorious, heavenly, apocalyptic vision, and the angel is happy and content to show John the patience of the saints who in spite of persecution, suffering, disappointments, persist in keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And the angel brags, here is the patience of the saints. When James says to be patient for the Lord's return, he's talking to poor Jewish Christians living under the domination of Roman oppressors. And patience is their strategy for perseverance. The second thing he says is strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This word establish your hearts means to strengthen your hearts or to make firm or to confirm your hearts. And essentially it's the idea of making firm your faith. Strengthening your heart with faith. In other words, don't waver, don't doubt, don't be double-minded. And it's James, the one who said, who tells us, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So strengthen your commitment. Double down on your faith. And make up in your mind what you believe and stick to it with a tenacity. Strengthen your hearts. Gird up your loins is another way to put it. Isaiah said, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Why do we wait patiently and strengthen our hearts? Because number three, the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is all throughout the New Testament. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Romans 13, 11, our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand. And guess what one of the primary outworkings of living in anticipation of Christ's return is? So here's the application, right? What does it mean to live in anticipation of Christ's return? It means gathering together as the church. Don't believe me? Look at Hebrews 10, 25. And this statement is written to Christians facing death and persecution who are afraid to come outside their homes. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, as others have done. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return. That's written to people who are afraid of being killed, the danger of gathering. And yet he says, don't stay home. Don't do it. Important to let that linger in the air for a minute. Why shouldn't they stay home, even though there's danger? Because the Lord is coming back. 
And because the Lord is coming back, we need more fellowship, not less. We need more of the word of God, not less. We need more gathered prayer, not less. And we need more of the means of grace, not less. So as we approach the return of the Lord, it's not time to wind down. It's time to ramp up. Now, we don't know when the Lord will return, right? And people have made that mistake in the past where they have predicted dates, right? We're not doing that. What we are acknowledging is none of us know when the Lord could return. But it's important that we live in expectant hope and anticipation every day as if the Lord could return this evening, in a moment, tomorrow morning. We begin Advent with the power and glory of Christ's return in judgment because it shocks us out of our sentimentality about Christmas. It tells us that the dark powers of this world are not reckoning with a baby, but a reigning king. The God who was laid in a manger and went to the cross will one day be seated on a throne before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it and from his presence earth and sky fled away. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. That's enough to put a chill down your spine. That's enough to make you stand at attention. To make you contemplate and think deeply about the return of the Lord. Now, every party has a pooper and I don't want to be it. So let me... Clean this up a little bit, okay? <laughs> Does this mean we shouldn't be jolly or lighthearted during this time of year? Not at all. It's a totally joyful time. It's a wonderful time of year. We shouldn't be gloomy or down in the mouth. It's a great time of year. And it represents an incredible opportunity to share our faith, doesn't it? I just read an article the other day that said, stop saying that they've taken Christ out of Christmas. It is the most Christian time of year, whether or not anyone agrees with that, because it's a time of year where, along with Jingle Bell Rock, people are singing, O Come Emmanuel, sometimes in department stores and in public places. It's an incredible opportunity. It actually is a time, and so I've sort of changed my position. I think I was a critic about CEO Christians, you know, church and Easter-only folks, and now I realize it's an incredible opportunity, and there's a reason Right? Why churches capitalize on it? Because those two times of year, people who may be skeptical or unbelieving are actually more open those time, these times of year to hearing about Christ and hearing about the gospel. So I want you to think about this time of year as an opportunity to share your faith. Whether we're inviting people to church who don't usually come or who wouldn't usually come, or inviting our skeptical neighbors over for dinner, for Christmas dinner, or giving gifts to coworkers or to the poor and needy. We have a golden opportunity. So this is a golden opportunity. 
Advent's a beautiful time of year. It points us to the birth of Christ. It also points us to the second coming of our Lord and Savior. And you have to use discernment by God's Spirit to know how to talk to people. In some situations, it may be talking about the beauty of Christ's birth, and for others, the Spirit may lead you to talk about the return of the Lord. But Advent is an invitation to faith in the Christ who was born in a manger but is returning as a king. Let's pray. Father, thank you now. Thank you for Advent. Thank you for the joy of this time of year. But, Father, we do pray that the reality, the certain and sure promised reality of Christ's return would shock us out of mere sentimentality about this season and help us to sober up and to think clearly that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us now, O God, and let our hearts be filled with that hope and the promise of your love in our soon returning King. Amen.